Um, I want to say it's day two, four, day three. Uh, well, you, you look and I'll look because I'm... Oh, well, your pay's getting docked, too. Okay, in the Bible, where it says the waters above and the waters below, what does that mean? And right now, we're trying to figure out... Uh, Genesis what 1, the, 6, and 7. Genesis what? Genesis 1, 6, and 7. Genesis 1, 6, and 7. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from uh, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And I want to say, too, it does, there is something, okay, sorry. <laughs> and there is something also occurs in, um, in the flood, where the waters are brought down and the waters are opened up from beneath. Um, Mike, you're answering first. I need to <laughs> Okay. So what does it mean? <clears throat> um, I just, I'm going to read this again through the microphone because probably it didn't, it didn't get transferred over onto your uh, recording. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. I got to say, I, I don't know. I don't know that I particularly dwelled on this as far as the expanse meaning heaven. Um... I do know that within the New Testament, Paul refers to first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. Uh, If if this is indeed a reference just to atmospheric moisture in the first heaven, and as far as the water above the expanse, uh, the waters below the expanse, you know, down... Uh, our oceans, our seas, and everything, all the subterranean water that exists in what we know. i That's my limited answer for this. And I've never, I don't know that I've ever dwelled on this question before. I have. Me neither. Um. What I'm, I think that might be part of it, because originally, as we know, um, day one, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form, and it just had water, basically. There was no earth, no land at the time. It wasn't until the third day, I believe, um, that the waters are brought together, and then the land is separated from the waters. So, we're going to be getting into this a lot more in detail, because Ellen's like, we need to do Genesis. Um, and so Genesis is actually going to be our next book. So we're going to be looking more into it then. But during the time period, water itself was, um, in polytheism, a god. And whereas within the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, it's not a god. It is a created thing. Um, and so what the text might be talking about is just the fact that, okay, originally there was this water. Generally, water is seen as um, something that cannot be controlled, but God controls it, and he separates it, and he brings the water on the earth, and he separates it from the waters in the heavens. It may simply be atmosphere. It may simply be the clouds. It may simply be something like that. Personally, I'm not sure. I haven't quite researched it enough yet, but we'll find out in a few weeks. How about that? I promise that. <laughs> I'll look more into it. Keep it. Oh, is, there, is there any other question, comment about that? Water's above, water's below? That's my, if I had to guess, that's what my, my guess would be. I also said that it was rain that caused the water. So yeah. I caused the water rain. So again, it would be like, the, it would be again the, the atmosphere, the clouds, things like that are the top, and then the water below is the water below. Yeah. Yeah. All right, what is the purpose of prayer? Um, all right, so let's say this. Let's say God is omniscient and God knows everything. Why pray to him? 
Okay, but the point is, I think, further, why pray to a, to a God who already knows what you're going to ask for? Why pray to a God who already knows well in advance, thousands of years <laughs> before you even exist, that you're going to pray for what it is that you're going to pray for? Um, Jesus himself discusses this. He discusses it in Matthew before the Lord's Prayer. He says, um, don't go on and on and on with your prayers because your Father in Heaven already knows what it is that you want to pray for. Instead, pray like this, and then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. Um, all right, so, despite that being the case, God obviously wants us to pray because it's, first of all, personal. Our relationship with God is a personal relationship. The same way that you and I talk to one another, prayer is a way that we talk to God. Um, it allows us to go to the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, and, and go before His throne. So there's the first element. It reminds us of who God is and who we are in relation to Him. Now, let's say that God knows 2,000 years in advance what it is that you're going to pray for. We know prayers do happen. We know that prayers come true when asked. Is it possible that God, knowing all the prayers of his people and his children, would then create the circumstances, even back then, for knowing what we're going to pray for, to allow the events to happen so that, in a way, we actually do help change the events by him already knowing what we're going to pray for? Um, that's a really interesting one. <laughs> I just heard about that recently. And I'm like, I could agree with it. I could agree that God could know what we're going to pray for. And then because of the course of history, he could change certain things so that when we finally do pray for it, it happens or healing occurs or this happens. I think it's possible. Um, in that sense, then, it's not a matter of us, let's say, uh, changing history, but it's a matter of God doing things in history so that when it's finally our turn to live, so to speak, things occur as we request them at the time. Um, and that way, again, God is still omniscient. He still knows everything. But because of who we are in our personhood and what it is that we're asking, he just goes through the course of history in order for those prayers to be answered. Um, I think that's definitely possible. I don't really have anything else about it. What do you think? It's a very good yeah, and I mean, there, there's there's no doubt prayers change things. But I think more significantly and more importantly, we need to be conscious that prayer changes us. Because Jesus, uh, throughout the New Testament, gives us uh, the reminder about what do we want to pray for? Do we just want to pray to be warm and fuzzy? Happy and happy and content, and, and yet, yeah, we all want to be there. None of us wants to have a thorn in the in the flesh. But what what was what was Paul's response when uh, uh, he asked for that thorn to be removed three times? And uh, God said, "My grace is sufficient for you." And then Paul basically replied, "Okay, God, this is for my good." I'm going to lean into that thorn and all that pain and all that hurt is going to remind me that your grace is sufficient. Why do we pray? Partly to reinforce our position. I shouldn't say partly, entirely. To reinforce our position as servants of the one who created this universe. And he has... Uh, uh, in the example of Paul, in the example of all of our lives, we have circumstances where, man, things hurt. And there's pain. And we want that pain to be removed. And maybe that's not what God wants. Why pray? Is to help us draw closer to him and realizing that he's the one that's the boss. And I know you heard me say this from the pulpit. Don't think of God as a genie in the bottle. When we're hurt or when we got a problem, you just rub that bottle and or a cosmic Santa Claus or however you want to think about it. Prayer changes things, but prayer changes us. Agreed. Okay. Oh, my turn. 
What is the role of angels? The role of angels, a category of created beings that are not like us. Um, their role is to is to function at, at God's will. Their role is to function as uh, uh, well, not only are they leading worship service in heaven, but they also are allowed interims of interactions with humans, mortals, to be a, uh, what should I say, I guess just to be a, a reminder that God really is who he says he is. Uh, the role of angels. I, I'd have to really, I guess, think about this more to give a, a much better answer, but for the first few thoughts that come into my brain, that's it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, uh, and we talked about this in Sunday school. What's, what's the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, that's the same thing with angels. <laughs> I mean, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever in whatever it is that they're called to do. Um, however, they don't move a step outside of the will of God. Um, they follow their, their deity, their God, the God, as he deserves to be followed. And if that means just singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over again for millennia, then they're going to do it because they want to glorify God because he's worthy. Um, and when it comes to you know, how they work with us, well, sometimes, I mean, angels themselves, the word itself comes from messenger. They're messengers first and foremost. Um, they were messengers in the New Testament with Mary. They were messengers with Joseph. In the Old Testament, they were messengers who um, warned Abraham about Lot, for example. They were also used by God for judgment, the angel of death. Um, bring fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Some would say that angels were used to do that. Um, so there's, there's different elements of them. And we also can't forget about Daniel, the angel coming to Daniel and, and interpreting his dreams for him. Um, and so from that perspective, that's their main role. Now, you know, we always want to be careful, though, about over um, giving them too much credence than they, I don't want to say deserve, because they are far mightier than we are. But the, the truth is, though, is that they're simply servants of God. Um, and as such, we don't need to pray to angels. We pray to God. We don't need to worry about angels being high above Jesus. Jesus is high above the angels. Um, and so we want to just be careful about how we deal with angels, lest we become idolaters. Lest we place angels, that which is lower, higher than what is they're supposed to be. Um, in the end... Jesus is far above, and you have Jesus. You don't need angels in that sense. However, God still uses angels for his glory by healing through doing various things. So that's their role. Their role is to simply glorify God in whatever way he deems appropriate in any given circumstance for his glory first and foremost. One more thought that did come to my mind. Uh, this was some time ago, but this, we, we've talked about this at Bible study over at the manor more than once, and especially around Christmas time. What, what, what is the world system image of an angel? And as far as recognize, <laughs> re, re, rec yeah, just recognize there's not like little marshmallow babies that have wings, you know, that... And, are, and angels are always portrayed within this world secular system as gender female. Um, if not always, most of the time. So anyway, I want you to all at least have a measure of awareness of... of what? Oh, I just posted pictures. <laughs> well, that, that one's gender neutral, but that... That's what I was going to say, is that a lot of angels are gender neutral. Gen well, well. Other than we know, there's several angels that we know that are named Michael, Gabriel, which gender male. Uh, 
But that's not even accurate. That's, uh, uh, cherubs don't have wings like that. As far as we know, at least, uh, I think they have four wings. The cherubim, seraphim. Anyway, the, the world system gives us these images of angels that are indeed just a artist rendering. Yeah. And really... Ready to look at, but... <laughs> All right. Um, Good. We got plenty of time. What are your thoughts on people who have clinically died and yet come back to life and talk about the light or heaven? I don't really have a great preference except that I think that we can be easily deceived into thinking that that makes our faith more affirmed. As though that we needed something like that to say, ah, see, heaven does exist. I don't need that to know that heaven exists. I know God exists, therefore that just follows the thought. Um, Also, I mean, we want to be careful. There was one best-selling story about a boy who died, who went to heaven, came back, and it turned out to be false. And millions and millions of copies of his book were sold. Um, You know, I, I don't remember. But the, the one, the boy who, who did it said that his father coaxed him into it. And he repent the, the son repented of it. And, you know, that's why you want to be careful. You don't need these things in order to have affirmation. And I think a lot of people will read them thinking, oh, well, this actually happened. Therefore, it proves the existence of God and the existence of heaven. And I would say you have your scriptures. Don't be like um, uh, Lazarus and... Do you, do you guys remember, not, not the one Lazarus who died and came back, the Lazarus who died with, and the beggar at the door died as well. Yeah. And the whole parable of the story is, okay, there's one on Abraham's side and then there's one on the other side and the rich man is sitting there saying, oh, Lord, just, or, or Abraham, go to my, 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 um, my brothers and go tell them what's going to happen if they don't change. And then I believe it's Abraham who responds, they have the prophets, they have the law. That's enough. I mean, it's a reminder to it. Real quick, because not only that, he said, even if I did send somebody back from the dead, they wouldn't believe me. And that's the fact, because Jesus did come back from the dead. And there's many that don't believe. Sorry, I had to. No, and and that's, that's why it's a reminder for us. You know, we have the scriptures. Why do we need more to affirm what the scriptures are to teach? Um, it seems odd to me. So, I mean, from that perspective, there might be people out there who, who it happens. It might be psychological. It might be spiritual. I don't know. I don't want to base my faith, though, on these books that are occurring by what these people write and read about. I, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't want to say, okay, well, heaven must be like this because this person experienced it that way. I have no idea. That's not scripture. So why base your entire belief about heaven on what these people experience when that happens, when I'm not sure if it's a true experience or not? So, yeah, I'll, I, I agree with all that. The only other thing I'll add, and I, without checking what the scripture is, the Apostle Paul tells us it's appointed unto man once to die. Now, that's post-Jesus Christ. I mean, prior to Jesus, or while Jesus was there, certainly we had resurrections. You know, people raised from the dead, Lazarus, the other Lazarus being one. Um... And as far as uh, uh, if if someone's faith is affirmed by that kind of an experience, I'll say praise the Lord. But I do know, well, like Pastor said, we have the scriptures. And scriptures say it is appointed unto man once to die. So, then that can raise the question of what is clinical death? Is clinical death really, really dead? Or not? Not not doubting the, the experience of the one who you know who, who has that experience, not doubting that at all. But as far as the issue of you know seeing the light, so to speak, we also know scripture tells us that even Satan can disguise himself as an angel. Um, if it brings about an, an affirming 
genuine relationship with Christ that leads uh, into a deeper uh, and closer fellowship based on scriptures. Praise the Lord. God can do whatever he wants to do. Um, But as far as my personal understanding and belief is, I don't doubt that that's the experience that someone has had. But I doubt it's authenticity. That's what we can say. Anybody want to challenge, rebuke, <laughs> <laughs> throw something at me? <laughs> I will. Go ahead. The Bible says there's a gulf, and you don't cross over from hell to heaven or heaven to earth. Yeah, that was Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Speaking of the of the rich man, yeah. Well, those individuals, my understanding, let, let's 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 have a redefining or a definition. What's it mean? What does death mean? What does death mean? Death means nothing more to separate. Okay, now bear with me. Physical death, your soul separated from your carcass. Spiritual death, your soul separated from the presence of God. Okay? I know we've all talked to... I'm going to argue that. Okay, wait. Later we'll argue. There's a question in there that I saw. We'll talk about that. Well, anyway, as far as Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and there's a golf, and the rich young man who's in torment and torture, and he just wants a, a, a fingertip of water to cool his... Um, to cool his... Uh, Uh, torment. Yep, there's a gulf. So once you die, once you physically die, there is no crossing over. All right. Go ahead. Just one problem, Lazarus. (laughs) I said post-Christ. Well, yeah, but he was pre-Christ, dying. And even before that, you had the boy with Elijah. Who died, and then and then he, yeah, and then post Christ, the boy who fell out of the window, and Paul raised him from the dead. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and Paul the stone. <laughs> yeah. So, go ahead. You, I said. No, you're, now you're do, getting me in trouble. No, no. Do another question. It's okay. Do another. Do another question. All right. Anybody else want to comment or have? <laughs> another question. You'll think about it now. Now I'm going to have to think about it. What is the firmament? What is the firmament, and is it solid? I guess this is a question preferring to the creation in Genesis. What is the firmament, and is it solid? Uh, yeah, you go first. <laughs> Generally, I think the the term firmament um, it reflects on just the heavens. And by heavens, I don't mean uh, the spiritual realm of where God dwells, but the heavens of stars and galaxies and the universe. Um, and so the firmament, as far as I'm aware, whenever it talks about it in the Psalms, um, the, the, the heavens, the firmament, declare the glory of God, for example. Um, I, I'm fairly certain that's what it's, what it's indicating. So it might be, maybe it's the void even between galaxies, between stars. Maybe it's something like that. I'm not 100% certain. Um, but that's something that we'll talk about more when we get into Genesis. <laughs> I'm deferring to future reference. <laughs> you can defer. I, I, I'm going to punt this question because I, I don't have a clue. I, have, I can't say I've considered it. Huh? If I had to guess, that's all I could say. Oh, well, you're up. Oh, I am? All right, what is going to happen after the final judgment? And I think this is where I'm going to disagree with you, Mike. Probably. Um, all right, so I'm going to stand. So I need to think as I walk around. That's what I do. I pace. All right, final judgment occurs. You have two different groups of people. You have those who are believers going into eternal life. You have those who are unbelievers and demons and... 
the devil and all these being thrown into the pit of fire for the second what we would call death. Now, before that happens is a resurrection of all people. Um, good or bad, all are resurrected before the final judgment. Now, I've come up with a theory. <laughs> I've got a theory. Um, honestly, we have to wonder, okay, about the eternality of judgment. We don't want to say that we're annihilists, which means that, okay, once they're thrown into the lake of fire, they just disappear forever. That's a heresy. That, that's not what we believe. We believe that when they're thrown into the lake of fire, it's an eternal punishment. The question is, what does that mean when we say eternal punishment? Um, a lot of times we think, okay, they're in eternal torment. Uh, it's a continued, um, you know, being whipped or beaten or in fire and brimstone. The problem is, there's no evidence of that in the text itself. So what I have thought is, okay, the eternal punishment is just a simple decision and that it is an eternal decision. Therefore, the second death is literally a second death in which what Mike said earlier, the separation of body from soul. And that's it forever. Never again will those souls inhabit their body ever again. Whereas those who are in Christ, they live forever. They will never experience a separation of body and soul. Um, so if we define death as Mike earlier defined it, then that would make sense, and that would also make sense as to, okay, it doesn't necessarily need to be a fire and brimstone every second of every day, but it can simply be the body itself is destroyed once and for all, whereas their souls continue on in the void, so to speak. Now, I'm going to disagree one more time with Mike in regards to the spiritual death. You said, <laughs> you said that a spiritual death is a separation of the person's soul from God, the presence of God. I'm going to argue that because can you ever get to a point when you're outside of the presence of God? If God is omnipresent and if he is everywhere, can there ever be anywhere where God is not? I would argue yes. no. <laughs> because God is not in the heart of an un unbeliever. Uh, not what I'm saying. <laughs> like, okay. like I'm, what I'm saying is can there ever, even if they're not, he's not in the heart of an unbeliever, it doesn't mean that God is not around. Correct. And he is not in the presence of. And, and the like, psalmist says, you know, where can I get Psalm 73? Where can I flee where, from where your... Where can I flee? Where I can't get, I away. Can't get away. And that's why I would argue that a, a spiritual death like that, I don't think that's the point because that's too platonic. You know, we as Christians have always understood it to mean that the body and the soul were always meant to be together. There was ne it was never supposed to... We were never supposed to die. We were never supposed to have that moment of death where our bodies and souls were separated. It only happens after the fall. So what happens with Jesus? That's remedied. We now have a time when that never happens again through Christ. Therefore, the second death is literally just that. It's a second death, but it's an eternal punishment. It is a forever they will be separated from their bodies and souls. Something that was never supposed to happen, but does because of sin. Now, I would love for someone to argue with me, but I have one other point to make with this. Um... And that has to do with demons. Never in the scriptures do demons have a physical form the way angels do. They inhabit people. What happens when the, or when the demon is expelled from, um, from, from the... From the per well, no, not the crazy man. Well, actually, we could go with the crazy man first. We'll go with the crazy man. He says, don't send me into the void. And then so God, Jesus sends him into the pigs. Yeah. Because the demon didn't want to be sent outside of a body. The second thing is when Jesus says, okay, you exercise a demon from a person, it goes out into the wilderness, and then it comes back, sees everything cleaned up, and then invites seven more. But what does it say about that demon? He says it returns to its home. Um, and so what I think is happening is that when we talk about death, demons at one time were angels who did have a physical form. God punished them by no longer allowing them to have their physical form. So they have to go and inhabit physical forms in order to feel that home presence. What I think might happen is that when the resurrection occurs before the final judgment, even demons will receive their earthen physical forms again, 
But when they're thrown into the lake of fire, it's done. They never get it again. Same with unbelievers. That's a theory. I have yet to find a reason why I should not hold that view. As of yet. It makes sense to me. Mike, I don't know if you agree or not, but it makes sense. I'm not prepared to. I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to digest that. Yeah, think about it. In more time than what we're going to have here. <laughs> makes sense to me. I'm just saying. Oh, I know this one. <laughs> what is the next book we are going to study? <laughs> My guess? Genesis. <laughs> Give me another one. That one's too easy. <laughs> Are there any topics that you find harder to preach on than others? Yeah, for me. Finding uh, a topic to preach a a, a funeral for a a baby or or a child that was abused, died, it's like, uh, whoa, whoa. yeah, that, that for me, as far as topics, how, how do you provide comfort? And I, I rec- recognize, or I should say, I don't recognize a calling to be a preacher. And I think maybe that's why, because I tried to do that once. It didn't, didn't go well. At least I didn't think it went well. But. Are there any topics that you find harder to preach on than others? And, and maybe I didn't answer that correctly. As far as topics, uh, other, other, than, other than that, I'd say no. Genesis. <laughs> so much in Genesis. <laughs> um, I... I <laughs> I just got a few of the commentaries recently for Genesis that we're going to start reading and, and 50 pages of, of the intro just to discuss who wrote it, how it was written, uh, the Yahwist, the priestly writer, the Elohist, the Deuteronomy writer, um, how it was compiled, source criticism, um, literary criticism. Yeah. <laughs> It's a hard time. It's a hard time, but at the same time, I think it's good because, you know, David mentioned one time about how his friend, who I think used to attend here, went to seminary, came back and was really depressed because of what he was learning in seminary. That's a lot of it. Source criticism. Um, you know, we're kind of told, okay, Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. Simple. And then comes the higher German critics who say, well, this, this chapter is written differently than this chapter, and they use different words for God in both chapters. One uses Yahweh, one uses Elohim, so it can't be the same author. Therefore, it must have been compiled together through some other means, probably around the time of the exile. Why not? Um, and there's just a lot there for biblical scholarship that people don't realize is there. And then you've got people like me who has to wade through it, <laughs> and I have to figure out, okay, what makes the most sense? And then when you figure, okay, Genesis 1, you've got those who are young earth creationists who are faithful. You've got those who are old earth creationists that are faithful. What do you do? Um, How do you interpret the text? How is it supposed to be interpreted? Are we supposed to interpret it a way that may have been different than they originally who wrote it would interpret it? Uh, David, for example, let me read a book that uh, talks about the serpent. And is the serpent really a serpent or is the serpent an angelic form who... It's just called a serpent because in that time period, serpents were used in that way to describe a certain angelic being. There you go. Lots of discussions. Uh, <laughs> lots to go over, and that's just the first chapter. <laughs> and that's the first five verses. Um, so there's, there's a lot there. And then also, I mean, otherwise, when it comes to topics, though, not really. Um, because, you know, I mean, I can talk. We could just go where the scriptures go and then trust the scriptures. But when it comes to certain things like Genesis, it is a hard time. Revelation, the same thing. A lot of different views, a lot of different theories. And so when we go over it, I'm just going to recommend that you think about it yourself and you come to your own conclusion. It's not going to make you any less or more of a believer as long as you agree with one thing. 
alone that we'll go over. If you agree with the one thing and then however you define it afterwards is fine. Um, but we'll get there eventually. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Write this down, make a note. Whenever there's things that we just don't know. Deuteronomy 29, this is my go-to. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Point is, some things have been revealed, some things have yet to be revealed. (laughs) So, that's my cop-out. God told me that. (laughs) Deuteronomy 29. All right. This is going to be our last one. Unless we want to keep going. We'll ask that in a minute. What is a good response to the problem of evil? I don't know if it's a good response, but it's a response. Um, All right, backstory. I had a friend growing up in high school, actually from first grade on, and we would attend uh, church together, youth groups together, everything. Eventually, in want to say ninth grade, something rather sorrowful, atrocious, I would even say, happened in his life. His, his cousin committed suicide. So he went and he asked pastor, people in the church, you know, I'm having doubts about all this. What am I supposed to do? You know, how can, how can something so evil occur, yet I'm being told God is a good God? I mean, if God is an, an omnipotent God, he's all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, and if he, he has all these attributes, how can evil exist? He never got an answer. Not, he never got an adequate one. It was just have faith, um, continue on, don't doubt, you know, God is a good God. Simply put, that's not a good answer. It's not. Um, you know, the truth is, is that Things happen in our lives. We, we've experienced them even this past year in our own country when awful evil happens. How you respond to that and how you understand that will help you a great deal. Um, and so let's say evil occurs. First, you want to look at it just from the outside. So this is not something that evil happened to you. It's something that just an evil happened. Putting it on the table, how do you look at it? How do you look at it from there? Um, I would argue that a lot of people would say, okay, if evil exists, then God can't exist because if God were a good God, he wouldn't let that happen. I would argue that if God can use evil to further bring about a better good, then evil can exist and God can exist. Now, I have evidence of this happening in the scriptures. Jesus. The greatest evil that humanity ever committed was putting Jesus on the cross. Yet, from that evil comes complete and total redemption. So, when evil occurs, I can look at it and say, you know, I might not understand why this evil happened now. But 200 down the years down the road, a good can come from it. Maybe 200 people will come to Christ because of this evil occurring. And that gives me a a satisfactory answer as to why evil can occur. Um, And that goes to, you know, now now let's say we take it off the table. Let's say something evil happens in my own life. Well, because I've thought about it, when that evil occurs, I can think, you know what? I may not get the good out of this. Maybe my children will. Maybe people I know will. Maybe people 200 years down the road will get it. I have no reason to doubt God. He has always been good to me, even when this evil occurs. So that's how I would understand it and how I understand it. And when this happened, let's say this past year, when we lost the twins, that's how I understood it. I understood it from that perspective where evil occurred, yes, but I know that God is good and that he can take even this evil and turn it for good somehow. And I just keep my focus and my foundation on who God is and what Jesus has done. Um, I think that's the best and most adequate answer because it allows us to understand it philosophically, but it also allows us to understand it internally. When sorrow happens in our own lives, it gives us comfort, knowing 
God is good. Um, but that's how I would understand it. And I mean, it may not be a good answer, but I think it's an adequate answer. Yeah, let, let me reread that question. What is, what is a good response to the problem of evil? Also, I haven't read it yet, but Alvin Plantinga wrote a book called um, that basically deals with this question, the problem of evil. And we have to remember, too, that evil comes because of human freedom. Um, it's not as though God himself is causing, well, he can, in a way, cause calamities. He says he does it in the prophets. We went over that. Um, but we have to remember, too, that it's because of human evil and human free will that has been distorted that the majority, if not all, the evil occurs to begin with, to be honest. so. And, and to just add on to that, <clears throat> evil wasn't in this world until after Genesis 2. Three, sorry, <laughs> Genesis three, and after Revelation twenty, evil will not be here anymore. So we happen to occupy time and space between Genesis three and Revelation twenty. Evil is permitted to be to, to exist. It's, it's like your question: Where was God during Auschwitz? You know, type of a question. But. What is a good response to the problem of evil? And I'll just go with the, the words of, uh, of Paul. Stand firm. Resist. Re- actually, what's, uh, resist and he shall flee from you. You know, who is the author of evil? Who is evil? It's, it's Satan, right? Um, so the only way that we can stand firm and resist is to know God's word be able to recognize truth from a lie and be conscious and aware that we occupy time and space between uh, Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. Evil's here. So how do we respond? Stand firm. Resist. Not just be complacent. Not just sit back. Not just, oh, that's somebody else's problem. There you go. We're, we can keep going if we want to. It's 10 after. Do you want to do the next question? Which is... Well, you got them. How do you know what the next question is? Okay. Huh? Well, I'm going to pull a different one out. Well, there's only three left. Wrong. There's four. You want one more? Done? I'm asking. I mean, we're about, we're about quarter after we're right now. You now. Yeah, I'm asking you. <laughs> Keep them short. short. All right, one minute. Does God hear and answer prayers of non-believers? <laughs> oh, sorry. That's the one That's I have Oh, I wanted to pick a different one. <laughs> Does God hear and answer prayers of non-believers? I'm going to... I know I'm I'm going to say no and I'm going to qualify that with the prayer of a believer is going to trump the prayer of a non-believer so a non-believer who by chance by coincidence happens to be getting his prayer answered is a consequence of a believer getting his prayer answered. Okay, now I'm in trouble. Go ahead. No, no, I think I agree. Um, no, I just, I just thought of something really funny because it kind of goes against, I'm going to say it, it goes against the schema of if you pray a prayer to ask Jesus in your heart, then you're saved. Because if you are currently not, <laughs> currently not a believer, then he would not hear that prayer, therefore you would not be answered. Um, so therefore, one could argue that Something already had to have happened in the person for them to pray the prayer to begin with. But that's a different conversation. My answer is I don't know. I'll say that. Maybe. I mean, it, he can do what he wants. That's not true. Some people do pray. Yes. Yes, I do. No. An atheist, you're right. But for people who are supposedly Christian... Who are not? 
Not necessarily. But we, we could get into that debate later. Um, what is the church's main role in the world? What are secondary roles? Um, I would say the main role in the world is to come together to glorify God in order to make disciples and to keep on making disciples. Um, you know, Jesus says in, in Matthew 28, uh, go baptizing them, naming the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, um, making disciples of all nations. I mean, that's, that's the first role of the church. Um, we're not called to necessarily, first and foremost, primarily go out and fix and clean up everything. We're called to first and foremost make disciples. Now, the secondary role is once we can do all that and once we're focused on teaching and focused on learning together, um, when we're focused on being disciples and becoming, using discipleship through the word, that spills out to the world around us. Um, sometimes I think a lot of churches put the cart before the horse where they'll want to go out and you know, do all these things, but then they never make disciples. You're never going to change the world that way. The world has changed through Christ, first and foremost. Um, after that, when people and individuals are changed, that will lead to a community being changed. So that's just a thought about that. So first, glorify God, enjoy him forever, being disciples. Second, it spreads out as it goes on. I, I don't have anything to add to that. You want to get the next one? What is going to happen after the final judgment? We kind of already talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, we, we did that. Somebody threw it back in. Oh, it must have been him. It must have been me. Oh, look at that. That's you right. There was a little more. And you are. <laughs> are there any problem? Are there any problematic practices you find common in the American church? Problematic practices you find common in the American church. You know what? I'm going to have to... I'm not sure I can accurately define the word problematic. I mean, I know it's problem is the root word, but... But you do for I guess... Practices that are foreign to what the Bible teaches or foreign to church history. Um, I would argue, for example, if, if let's say there's an American church denomination that allows homosexual marriage, I would say that's problematic. Um, if there are churches that are focused on, let's say, social justice gospel, which is just go out, heal the world, don't worry about the gospel itself, just focus on making people's lives better. Um, let's go build wells in Africa and things like that and then not proclaim the gospel while we're there. I find that problematic. I think a lot of missions does that. Um, uh, anything else? I guess there's, not, there's a lot of churches I've found that focus too greatly on growth without defining what growth is supposed to be. I've encountered a lot of churches within the last few years where the number one question is, how would you grow the church? And that's not the question that churches are supposed to be asking at all. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 3, what do we find? I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow. We're called to do whatever God is calling us to do in our circumstances, whether it's to preach the word, to be faithful in our circumstances. God's going to call us to growth from that. By being faithful to what we're called to be, growth occurs. Um, and so I find that to be very problematic when, when that keeps happening, where growth is defined as numbers, as getting more people into the congregation, where things like that. Success. success, yeah. I mean, and that's not the case. That's not how it's supposed to be. Growth is supposed to be defined as a growth into godliness, a growth into further obedience into the Son of God, um, a further growth into glorifying God in our lives together, corporately as well as individually. That's true growth. Um, unfortunately, though, I think a lot of churches have been missing that, and they keep on trying something that they've been trying to do since the 80s, which is calls excitement, calls this or that. Actually, it's the cartoon on the back. You know, what do we need? We have the gospel which transforms everything. And then the, the guy who's doing all the church stuff says fog machines and lasers. You know, that's what we need. Um, that's not what we need. We need the Bible. 
and then we need to keep on being faithful ourselves, and then the world around us will see that faithfulness, and then it'll be changed. I, I don't know. That, I I don't know that I have anything to add to that. Um, now that I kind of have a, an awareness of the word problematic, so <clears throat> and what that all boils down to is. Uh, you know, that's what religion is. Re- religion is man's attempt to get to God. Not not faith, God getting to us. And so, religion, church, those phrases often kind of go together, and that's where I would caution us all to be aware of. The, the, the word religion is in itself... Um, problematic because all it is is trying to get and how do we get to God oh wow if we got our churches are full or pews are full we have to have a a building committee we need an expansion committee that's that is a lie of the world that's what the world tells you and me is successful financial gain prosperity so all right that's all so, syncretism, bad thing. Um, all right, well, if no one has any more questions, we've already stayed a little bit over, so how about we pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Um, <laughs> thank you, Benny. <laughs> He's okay with that. Father, we thank you so much that we were able to come together today to ask these questions and hopefully come to some kind of an understanding together. Um, we ask that you would continue to guide us and lead us as we continue to ask questions. And we know that more questions will happen in our lives because we live our lives. And we know that you're not a God who is scared of questions. You answer them all in your own time, in your own place, and sometimes even in these discussions. Um, so, Lord, continue to have our minds working. Continue to lead us further into your glory. And, Lord, give us, give us further faith to be faithful. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise as we sing a final hymn.